Welcome to Southside Community Church. Enjoy our Sunday morning message. So I frequently uh, joke about how much I, I love Christmas. It's actually not a joke. I really, really enjoy Christmas. I, I love all of it. I love the Christmas trees. I love the snow when we have it. I love hot chocolate with marshmallows. I love Christmas carols. I love presents. I love the entire thing. I love Christmas movies. I am all about it. And, um, and I want to make sure that in, you know, in the playful attitude about enjoying Christmas, um, I want to make sure that we don't miss that deeper meaning of Christmas. Because what Christmas does is it makes Christianity personal. Christianity is personal. It's not just a, a set of beliefs that you have, as though like if you were taking a test and you were able just to write out all the correct answers about what you're supposed to believe as a Christian, you pass and you're a Christian because you believe all the right things. It's not a series of strange practices like prayer. Every time I pray, I have to speak out loud because I just don't have the focus and concentration to be able to pray in my own head, so I have to talk out loud. And prayer would, apart from there being an actual God, and personal God who's listening, prayer would be very strange. Who are you talking to? We have a bunch of people talking to themselves. That's what prayer would be if it wasn't for a personal God. Or reading the Bible. It's not just a series of impersonal practices. Reading the Bible is not just reading some archaic book that was written by a lot of different people a long time ago in a lot of different circumstances at a lot of different times. It would be strange if it wasn't for a personal God. And Christianity is not just this pressure that we put on ourselves to be good people. Like when you hear someone say, he's a good Christian man. I'm not, I'm not sure exactly what that even means, other than saying you just mean he's a nice guy, he's a good guy. And sometimes we think of Christianity that way, but it's none of those things. Christmas teaches us that Christianity is actually deeply personal because it means that the God who created the world actually came and lived in it. He became part of creation. I mean, he could have been a very aloof, distant God who held all of us at an arm's distance and remained unknowable because he is transcendent beyond our wild imaginations. He's unknowable. He could have stayed that way. He could have been an impersonal, strict tyrant instead of a father, instead of a friend, instead of a brother. In Christ. Christmas teaches us that not only is God all sovereign and powerful, He's also loving. And so I want to today, um, I want to help you become familiar with two terms, and they're kind of strange terms. I didn't know what they, I didn't know they existed until a few months ago. Um, so most of you probably haven't heard these terms. 
I hadn't either, but the more that I'm thinking about these terms, the more it takes on kind of a whole deeper meaning of who God is and my relationship with Him. And you begin to appreciate the, um, just how loving He is. The first term, and this is in your bulletin if you want to follow along, is it's called God's natural perfections. That's a weird way to say it, hard to understand, wordy, unnecessarily wordy, but this is, this is how we're going to call it because this is how people have called it for a long time. God's natural perfections. So there's a movie, Braveheart, and it's about this um, 13th century revolt, Scottish revolt against King Edward I who's a tyrannical leader of England. And um, it was led by a guy named William Wallace. Now, they took a, a lot of creative license in Braveheart, but it's a stirring story. This guy, William Wallace, builds an army out of peasants and farmers, and he is massively, um, he's up against it. I mean, England is trying to create a larger dynasty and they're, they're coming into Scotland and he says, we're not having it, we're not going to put up with your tyranny, we're going we're gonna to fight back. And he creates this crazy army of peasants and they are withstanding England. And there's this interesting scene where they're in this room and they're, you know, he's, they've got some momentum because of William Wallace and they're celebrating, there's nobles in this room, and they're really excited about it, and all of a sudden they start bickering about land. Now it looks like we're going to be able to guard and safeguard our land. I want to make sure I get what's mine. Like I, you, I, They start fighting and arguing and bickering about it. And you can see William Wallace is just exasperated. He's like, oh my goodness, unbelievable. We can't even celebrate for five minutes and we're arguing about it again. He starts walking out and they're like, what are you going to do next? And he says, I'm going to invade England. We're going to England. They're like, you're nuts. You're crazy. And he's like, yeah. And he keeps walking. He goes outside. And this guy, Robert the Bruce, who is in line for the throne. So he knows how to play politics. Robert the Bruce runs out. He catches up with William Wallace and he tries to explain. He's like, listen, you got to play the politics a little bit here. You got people, these are nobles, they're important. And William Wallace is like, what is a noble? And he's trying to teach him, just play the game a little bit. And William Wallace looks at him and he says, your title gives you claim to the throne. But men don't follow titles. They follow courage. And if you would lead them to freedom, they would follow you. And I would too. And he walks away. It's very stirring. It's one thing for a person to have power. But power isn't what, what draws us to people. And Robert the Bruce had the power of a title. He was an heir of the throne. That's a lot of power. But Wallace was saying, people aren't going to follow you because of that. They need to see some moral fiber, courage. The beauty of moral character is what draws us to people. This is in your notes. God's natural perfections, so this isn't His moral perfections. We're going to get to that. This is more the, the title of um, 
Robert the Bruce. Think more Robert the Bruce in this. This is what he had. God's natural perfections refer to those things that make God superior. So it's the fact that he is all-powerful. He can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, however he wants, to whomever he wants. He doesn't answer to nobody. He could do anything. He's all-knowing. We get this weird idea of Jesus that he was like a, like a country bumpkin. Like You almost feel sorry for him. He's in the wilderness and he's trying to teach people and people are walking away from him and they, they kind of take advantage of him. And uh, He was the most brilliant being who's ever... I mean, he's God. <laughs> he's God. It's so weird when people talk about... Sci- or you, you, know, you have to choose science or religion, science or faith. It's like science is just like a three-year-old kid trying to figure out how someone built a Rolls-Royce. It's, we're trying to keep up to what God has already done. We're trying to figure out little corners of the universe. Like Science is trying to understand God, ultimately. Jesus is the most intelligent. Put him up against Socrates and Einstein, and he's the most intelligent person who's ever walked the face of the earth, and we treat him like he's a, we kind of feel bad for him. God is self-existent. The, the term for this, the technical term is aseity. It's the aseity of God. It means that He's the only being in the universe that is existing in and of Himself. Am I the only one that hears that? Okay. I was like, Lord, are you trying to tell me something? Because I'm listening. I'm here. I'm here for you. I'm here for you. Um, all right, just ignore it then. Um, the aseity of God means that he is life itself. And nobody else on earth can claim that. You live on borrowed breath. You live because God, metaphorically, doesn't literally say this, but every moment you breathe says, breathe, breath, 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 and provides it. And if he would stop saying that, metaphorically, you would stop breathing. The aseity of God. None of us are self-existent. We all are dependent creatures like all of the universe. What about majestic or eternal? None of us are eternal. We are everlasting and we will live on into eternity that way. But we haven't existed forever like God has. He's eternal. He doesn't have a beginning. And he doesn't have an end. And he's majestic, speaks to his grandeur, his beauty. There's a, there's a really sweet uh, series of images called the, the Hubble Legacy Field images. It's the Hubble telescope, and it, in one of the images, there was um, a little glow on a screen in the Hubble telescope, and they, they just aimed it there. <laughs> and for 16 years, collected light so they could see what it was. And in that little picture was 10,000 galaxies. And in the series of these pictures, it has, in just a tiny little corner of the universe, aiming that way, it has picked up and taken pictures of 265,000 galaxies in a series of these little images. That doesn't mean much. It should, but it doesn't mean much to us when we first hear about it. When you think of the Milky Way galaxy, if you, and I'm not going to take the time to do this, but if you really study the size of the Milky Way galaxy, it is incredibly, unfathomably enormous. It's 
insane how big this galaxy is that we live in. In this little faint glow of a screen, pointing at it for 16 years, Hubble telescope, a series of images, 265,000 galaxies. And when you look at a work of art, it tells you something about the creator. Majestic. And we know very little of God's majesty. These are all things that we call his natural perfections. But here's the thing. This is the crazy thing. You can know all of these things about God. You can believe all these things about God. You can know about God's natural perfections and still reject him. Can you believe that? You could know these things and believe these things about, to be true about God and still reject him. I've actually, I have heard people say, not maybe this exactly, but in so many words give the argument that if, if I could just, if I could have seen Jesus, like if I could have seen him crucified and then his resurrected body, I would believe it and I would follow him. If I could, I mean, if I could have known for sure that Jesus was crucified, it is beyond a shadow of a doubt. Nobody argues that Jesus was a historical figure. I mean, non-Christian, non-Jewish people historians wrote about Jesus. We know that he was a real person. We know that he was crucified. That's beyond doubt. And we know that the Roman soldier was batting a thousand and killing people. They were killing machines. They weren't going to mess up a crucifixion, especially on Jesus. So he really did die. And some people think, if I would have just seen him raised back to life in three days, hundreds of people did then I'd follow him. And I'm thinking, I don't know if he would. I don't think so. Because in Matthew 27, the chief priests and the Pharisees went up to Pilate and they said, uh, I remember him saying he's going to raise himself back to life in three days. He said, kill me and I'll raise myself up again in three days. So maybe we should put some guards by his tomb. Because what if the disciples come and steal his body? We got we to keep that from happening. And Pilate's like, you have access to Roman guards. Use them. So they put a couple guards at, at the grave. And then what happens a couple days later? They're, the guards are guarding the tomb. And an angel comes like lightning. And rolls away the stone, which is heavy. We won't get into it. It was heavy. It's not a one-man job. The angel rolls away the stone, it says in Matthew 28, and then he sits on it. Like he's almost gloating. These Roman soldiers are looking at him. He comes down. And when you see an angel, you don't want to see an angel. <laughs> because if you see an angel, you're going to be on the floor shaking. You're going to be terrified. Because every time an angel shows up in the Bible, they have to tell the person, don't be afraid. It's okay. I'm not going to annihilate you just listen they're scary and it says in romans 20 in matthew 28 these these guards these roman killing machine scariest people on earth are frozen in fear they become as though they are dead you ever have one of those really freaky dreams you wake up you're half asleep and half awake it's like a nightmare and you can't move and you're just like no i like that happens does that happen to anybody else that happens to me. That's terrifying because I can't fight anything off. Carrie, you're going to have to get my back on this because 
the monster's coming for us. And somebody has to stop it. Like, I can't move. I'm terrified. That's what happened to these guards. They see this angel, and he just rolls away. He just kind of, I can imagine him sitting on the stone just looking at him. And they, are, they become like dead men. And what do they do? They run back in the city, Matthew 28 says. They run back, and they tell the chief priests, it actually happened. Like the thing that you were saying they tell the chief priests what happened, and they have to know something cosmic is happening. They have to know, he, I think he is actually resurrected. And they're telling the chief priests, and some of the chief priests have to actually believe that it happened because they're talking to Roman guards. Their life will end if Jesus escapes from the grave. And they're like, I don't know what to tell you. It was an angel. It was really bright. It was terrifying. He was looking at us while sitting on the stone. We couldn't do anything. We were terrified. And I don't know what to tell you. That's what happened. You know what? You would think that the chief priest would say, my bad. He is God. We better get in our lane. What'd they do? They bribed the soldiers not to tell anybody. Don't tell anybody. Don't let this get out. And if you get in trouble with Pilate, we'll cover your back. Because you can know God's natural perfections. You can know how powerful he is. You can believe that he raised from the dead and still reject him. In James 2.19, it says, this is Jesus' brother talking, his half-brother. They had a different dad because Jesus' dad was God, the Father. It says in James 2.19, even the demons know who God is and they shudder. The demons knew exactly who they were dealing with with Jesus. They tormented a lot of people, still do. They didn't mess with Jesus. They were afraid of him. But they didn't know his love. Romans 14, 10 and 11 says, and this is, it's talking about the, that when Jesus comes back, he came first as a baby, he's coming back as a, as a warrior king. And it says, God says, this is God speaking about that day that he comes back. He says, as I live, every knee will bow. There won't be, as the great movie Outbreak, fantastic movie, there won't be one sole voice of opposition on earth standing bravely, refusing to bend his knee. Every knee will bow. And yet there will be people who still spend the rest of eternity apart from him in anguish, refusing to entrust themselves to him. And it'd be too late anyways. You can know God's natural perfections and still reject him. So let's talk about God's moral perfections. If God's natural perfections are his all-knowing, his all-powerful, his omniscient, um, his, his sovereign rule over every inch of creation, as you've heard before, uh, what are his moral perfections? And I put this quote in your bulletin. It's from Jonathan Edwards. Uh, it's the book, The Religious Affections. It's a little bit wordy, but it's understandable and it's interesting if you think about it. He's describing God's moral perfections. He says, all the spiritual beauty of his human nature. So God becoming a man in Christ 
and we're seeing all the beauty of who God is in Jesus. It says his meekness, lowliness. What does that mean? What does lowliness mean? That's a strange word. We don't use that very often. Imagine you go to a party, and you know when you go to a party, sometimes there's, there is a variety of people in the room, and some of the people are really intimidating. Like, because they're so successful, or because they're, um, you know, maybe super wealthy, or, or because they're like a professional athlete or something, or they're a celebrity, they're like an actor or an actress, and they're just, they're just intimidating, and it's, it's hard to talk to. And then there's people that are very unintimidating, very lowly. They're, they're like, I could, almost, I could take advantage of this person. I couldn't care less this, what this person thinks about me. Like, I don't, I'm not caring about trying to impress you. I want to impress that person over there. Jesus made himself this person. It's why Christian celebrity is insane to me. We have celebrity pastors. That is so insane to me. That's so backwards from what Jesus was and what we should be representing him. He made himself low, almost nothing. Why? So that he would be approachable. That's why kids loved him. Women felt safe around him. People who hungered for power wanted nothing to do with him because they didn't get it. He made himself nothing to be approachable. So his meekness, lowliness, patience, heavenliness, love to God, love to men, condescension to the mean and vile. Now this was written in the 1700s, so that means something different than what it sounds like. It means um, the God who is so completely unknowable because he's so completely different, he's so completely transcendent from the rest of us, so brilliant, actually becomes a man and befriends people who aren't all that smart. Isn't that interesting? Who do you have following him? Who did he choose to follow him? There were some philosophers in that time that would have been interesting and had a lot of sway with a lot of people, and he went and found someone fishing and ripping off their own people as a tax collector. People that Jewish people wouldn't even talk to this guy. That's who he chose. God who is morally and ethically perfect in every way, holy in every way, becomes a man and befriends people who aren't that good. Just not good people. And God befriended them and us. So, and compassion to the miserable. All is summed up in his, holy, his holiness or his moral perfections. Edwards uses both of those interchangeably, holiness and moral perfections. See, you, you were taught to think, and I was taught to think, that holiness, holiness is almost like um, kind of stuck-up-ish Christianity. Like, I'm better than you, self-righteousness. That's what we think of holiness. Like, I'm probably better than most of the people in this room. That's what we think holiness means. That's called being self-righteous. When you're hard to get along with and grumpy and mean-spirited and always judging people in your mind, you're not being holy. You're not being like Jesus. He wouldn't have anything to do with that. Jesus was lowly, gentle, compassionate, always thought the best in people, but knew people, didn't entrust himself to them, but always assumed the best. He was loving and gracious and kind and the best man that ever lived. That's what holiness is. And that is what Christmas puts on display so beautifully. Because God's moral perfections can be summed up 
in one word. Holiness can be summed up in one word, and don't be impressed by anything else. And that is love. And you can't love someone from a distance. Only from up close and personal can you love someone. That's the heart of Christmas. That God who could make the universe and all of the galaxies into a pancake or just disappear in an instant and could do the same thing with any one of us wanted to be friends. That's Christmas. And every now and again, Jesus in the Gospels would pull back the veil and allow people to see his natural perfections. We've talked about this before. We actually started a series. We started Southside with a series of snapshots of Jesus. And we would see these moments where he would pull back the veil and allow people to see how powerful he really is. Like when he was on a boat with some of them fishermen, his disciples, they were used to the sea, they were used to rough waters, they were used to storms at sea, and they were terrified. They thought they were going to die. That means it was a really, really bad storm. And Jesus stands up and he says, be quiet to the storm. And it does. (laughs) It stops. It'd be like if there was a blizzard out there. It looks really nice out there right now. But if there was a blizzard out there and it was just, all we saw was a flurry of white snowflakes and it was like zero degrees. And we walk outside and someone says, stop. And it's immediately clear and the sun's out and the sky's blue. That's what, that's what Jesus did on a boat. With the weather, he told the wind, he told the waves, you need to stop it. And they listened. And did that make the disciples love him? He showed them his power. Did they love him? It made them afraid of him. There's someone in this boat that tells the weather what to do and it listens. That's scary. They were afraid of him. Or what about when he raised Lazarus from the dead? He went to a funeral and he wept over his friend and over the, the brokenness of a, a creation that now has death as part of it. He was heartbroken and angry. And then he yelled the man's name. And the man came out of the tomb with grave cloth, <laughs> cloths on. I mean, he, he, had to, he had to have people help him get out of the grave cloths. He was dead. He'd been dead for several days. And Jesus yelled his name and he came out. And, and people saw that. Is that what caused people to fall for him and to love him? I think it's more. I, I mean, that's power. It calls him respect him and probably fear him. But I think it's more that he wept before he called his name. This is love that drew people to him. It was the mob when they came to take Jesus away. And he was, had been praying in Gethsemane with a couple, few disciples. And then he, he said, it's time to go. And... This angry mob comes and gets him for this kangaroo court so they can execute him, they can crucify him, and it's probably dark out, and he's with his disciples. They're not sure, they can't tell of the silhouettes, which one's Jesus probably, and they say, who is he, where is he? And, And Jesus says, it's me. And when he speaks, remember what happens? All he does is says, I'm here. Everybody falls down. Everybody. It's just like a little moment where God's saying, I'm letting you do this. It wasn't his power that I think his disciples saw 
that caused them to give everything for him. I think it was the fact they realized that he let them take him. It's the same thing when Jesus was talking with Pilate and Jesus refused to defend himself. And Pilate was angry because he wouldn't talk and said, would you just, do you know who I am? Do you know what power I have? I, I have the power of life and death over you. And you're not talking. And Jesus said, you wouldn't have any power over me if it wasn't given to you from above. And Pilate's wife's in the background like, you need to wash your hands of this one. <laughs> but it wasn't his power. It was his love. And Chris, Christmas humanizes God. It allows us to see what God is like as a man. If you want to know men how we should act, we should look a lot like what Jesus was like, and women too. And he hugged children. This is the Gospels. He hugged children, and he cried at funerals, and he stood up for the rejected, and he lifted the chins of people who were living in shame, and he hung on a cross. I guess what I'm trying to say and what we learned from Christmas is that it's not his power that draws you in. It's his love. And when you're caught up in sin and you've lost your way and you're in the darkness and you're trying to follow Jesus and you're doing your best and you just keep stumbling, it's not intimidation that he's going to use to bring you home, to lead you back into the light. It's, it's his kindness that draws you back that leads you to repentance. And God's natural perfections are important. His power is important. But Christmas puts on display His moral perfections. And I want to end by reading a, a poem, actually. And the music team, if you guys want to come up and um, uh, prepare for the, the song. Uh, I first heard of George Herbert from a, an author named Marilyn Robinson. And then I listened to a, John Piper does a, a talk called Saying Beautifully as a Way of Seeing Beautifully or something like that. It's a really good talk, and it's about George Herbert. Um, George Herbert was born in 1593, and he has this, uh, this, there's a book you can get called The Temple. And actually, Mackenzie Rose, um, who's about to sing, uh, gave me this book. Three, I think three years ago for Christmas or something like that. It's called The Temple. It's really, really, really good. And it's George Herbert's, essentially his autobiographical account of his life in prose. And it's his spiritual life. It's this wrestling match between him and Jesus, like pushing Jesus back and Jesus still sweetly coming back to him and stiff-arming Jesus and Jesus saying, I'm going to love you until you believe it. It's this battle back and forth. It's called the temple. It's absolutely beautiful. And one of my favorite poems is read by John Piper in this talk. It's Love Three. It's an autobiographical sketch of, um, it's like a made up but kind of real story of George Herbert having this conversation with Jesus. And, you know, eating with someone was huge back then. And it was a sign of love and welcoming, welcoming them into your family and friendship and all sorts of things. And it's this picture of, Jesus trying to convince George, no, I want you. I don't want somebody else. I want you. I'm inviting you to the table. And George just can't believe it. He keeps pushing back and pushing back. I want to read it. It says, love bade me welcome. Love is Jesus. 
Love bade me welcome. Yet my soul drew back, guilty of dust and sin. But quick-eyed love, observing me grow slack from my entrance in, drew nearer to me, sweetly questioning if I lacked anything. A guest, I answered, worthy to be here. In other words, I'm not. Love said, you shall be he. I, the unkind, ungrateful, ah, my dear, I cannot look on thee. Love took my hand and smiling did reply, who made the eyes but I? Truth, Lord, but I have marred them. Let my shame go where it doth deserve. And know you not, says love, who bore the blame? My dear, then I will serve. You must sit down, says love, and taste the meat. So I did sit and eat. Let's pray. Thank you for listening. Check out our website at southsideworcester.com.